three, two, one, roll the footage. Welcome back to the Strategy Sprints podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Simon Severino. And my guest today is a highly respected international speaker, best-selling author of multiple books, entrepreneur and sales leader, specializing in B2B sales, business to business. He's best known for his work at the sales blog, which has helped him gain recognition as a top thought leader in sales strategy. He is also the designer of level four value creation and building consensus methodologies that help sales organizations achieve transformational breakthrough results. Welcome everybody, Anthony Yannarino. Thanks for having me, it's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to be in Ohio with you and sharing some sales knowledge because this is so relevant right now for everybody. It generally is revenue. I mean, people care about revenue. They care about winning clients. And uh, I like the idea of sprinting to do some of that. It's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, the last book that I wrote of yours was The Art of Closing, but it's not your current book. We will just start there because I love it. The 10 commitments that we need to achieve and would you like to tell us a little bit of the backstory uh, of that book? Why did you write that book? Um, we'll have to go back a little bit in time. So you'll have to hang with me for just a minute. So in 1988, Neil Rackham wrote a book called Spin Selling. A lot of people know that book, Spin Selling. It's a very, very popular book. It really did change the way that we were selling. And uh, it was a, a very powerful structure that he created. So the spin model is situation questions, problem questions, implication questions, and need payoff questions. And what he realized is that to create value, you can't just ask like how many of these do you use and how much of that do you use or any questions that were just situational. But when you got to implications and problems, then you're having a real conversation. But everybody loved the, the structure but the three pages before he ever gets to the spin model had a story about the fact that his team observed 34,000 sales calls. That's a lot of sales calls. And he recognized that there were two things that were happening. If it was a small transactional sale, so one where there was no repercussions for being wrong, always be closing was exactly right. Like there's nobody can be gay hurt buying this. Like if you're at the camera store and you need batteries and they go, hey, do you need some batteries while you're here? Not a big problem because you can't be wrong. It can't hurt you. But as he started to look at B2B sales, where business was dependent on making good decisions, where the decision could have a strategic and detrimental outcome for getting it wrong, where there's negative consequences, always be closing was a terrible idea. The, the customer's not ready to go through that process yet. They need to have some conversations before they get there. And so what Rackham said is there's two things that happen at the end of a call. You get a continuation. And a continuation sounds like, you know, so great meeting you. We loved everything you had to say. It was so interesting. And we're going to definitely reach out to you in the future. And that sounded really nice, right? It sounded like complimentary how good you were. But then that person would never, ever get back with you. There was no next step. And then the second choice that might happen is you might get an advance. And an advance is 
okay, so the next step, we'll get together, we'll go over this information together, and we'll decide the next step for us after that. So Rackham called that an advance. He never defined what the advances were. In the book, there's nothing that says this is what an advance is and this is what you should look for. But I took what he said to heart when I was selling, and I started to realize you have to link together a whole bunch of conversations. So you just link them together, and you make sure that the client knows that they have to have all these conversations. So I made a list in the 10 commitments that I like are in that book. So you might have five that are different from mine. Maybe you're like, well, Anthony, you left out like you need to get data from people. All right, well, put that in your structure. But what I laid out there was the commitment for time, the commitment to explore change, the commitment to change, the commitment to collaborate and build a solution, the commitment to build consensus and five other ones that I found really helpful to have a conversation with the client about. And so I took Rackham's main idea and I decided to expand it to fit a whole book so that people could have some good direction about how you have these conversations. And the last one is the commitment to execution, which basically is the close, right? Well, no, the one before that is the close. So it's the commitment to decide. And and then if sometimes they decide to buy what you sell, and then they don't use it and they don't get the value from it. And you have to go back and tell them like, no, you need to do this. <laughs> you need to actually execute this so you can get the result. And that's one that um, people weren't prepared for. They're like, oh, I have that problem all the time. Yeah, it's hard. Sometimes they'll buy something and they won't use it the, or use it right or use it well enough to get the results. So we have to make sure they get the result because that's what we do when we're in professional sales. And the 10 commitments, they happen all in one call or like three, four of them happen in the, in the pre-call, in the marketing part, and then a couple of them happen in one or, or two calls. What's your experience? Well, there are people who sell B2C who have been able to do that in one or two calls. So when they're selling to a consumer, they can do it sometimes in one or two calls. For B2B, it's normally, you know, four calls. And, and in very, very large deals, it might be something more like 11 or 12 calls that they can go through all those because sometimes you have to go backwards. So you've done really good discovery and then a new stakeholder comes in and says, you know what? I wasn't part of that conversation. We need to go back and have that conversation again. And if that's what they want and that's what they need to move forward, that's what you have to do. So it's now nonlinear. It's not, it's not a straight path all the time. This book has brought you a lot of attention and has helped many, many sales teams around the world structure their B2B sales. Now you have written a further book. Why did you write another book? Well, I've written three books so far. The, the first one's called The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. And uh, that was the first book. So that wasn't a good name when you have two more books coming right on the back of that one. So that was just they get to pick the name when you have a publisher. So they picked the name because they thought it was provocative. So that was good. Uh, that one was a bestseller. And, and you had and then the second at the beginning of this one, you start with apologizing. I told you it's the only one that you need. Now <laughs> yeah. here comes the next. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get any choice over that. They chose it. So the second one, so the first one's really a competency model. It's about how do you become the kind of person that people want to buy from? Because if you get that part right, selling gets a lot easier. And then the second one is about how do you have these conversations? And then the third one is called Eat Their Lunch. 
And that book is about what we call competitive displacement. So how do you steal customers away from your competition? And as far as I know, that's the first real sales book on a competitive strategy to take customers away from your competition. But for a lot of us in B2B, that's all we do. I mean, to win an account, I have to take it from someone else. And uh, there wasn't a book that covered that. So I wrote that book to help people go out and create opportunities where somebody already has the business. So that that's what that book is about. And for a whole bunch of us, it's all we all we can do. Like every client we call on, they're already using somebody. So you have to figure out how am I going to take it away? Oh, that's interesting because there is not so much written about that. There is a lot about competitive analysis, but that is more broad and general. Uh, and, and it's true. Many, many times, if not most of the times when we have a conversation with somebody interested, they are already working with somebody else. And there is always right. this topic, how do you deal with that? Now, some people say, just go over it. Just say yes and and continue. You have a different approach. What's your approach? Well, my approach is I never say anything bad about a competitor. I normally say things that are really nice about them. So I'll say something like, you know, we know a lot of people in the industry. We've been in the industry for a long time. They're good people. They work really hard. They just have a different business model than we have. And we like our model better and they like their model better. And what I'd like to do is share with you some of the differences in ours. But basically the dis displacement strategy for me starts with teaching the client how to understand that they're probably not getting the results that they're capable of. And I do that with an executive briefing. So in that book, the first thing that you'll learn is that there's four levels of value. Product, that's the lowest level. Experience, that's the second level. The ability to do whatever it is that your, your company does, that's the third level. But the fourth level is the strategic outcome. So where a lot of people come in and say, let me tell you about my company. Let me tell you about our solutions. Let me tell you about the work we're doing with your competitors. I don't say any of that. I say that in the United States, every day 10,000 baby boomers retire. And that because they're retiring at such a fast pace, you're not going to be able to get the talent that you need. And instead of looking to buy that talent, you're now going to have to start building that talent yourself internally. So I start with trends and factors, and I try to teach people how to understand the decision they're making, kind of like a Sherpa. Like If you want to climb Mount Everest, you probably want somebody that's walked up Mount Everest to go with you so you don't make a mistake. That would be the last time you're on a mountain, right? And that's the way that we think about these things. We think of it as we're here to serve the client. We're here to help them. And, uh, and we're responsible for the conversation. So I generally start with why change and explaining to them how they should operate in their world. We have a comment from Catherine Brown. Absolutely agree that it is unhelpful to speak poorly of a competitor. Not helpful, as my woo-woo friends would say. It is low vibe. It is a low vibration, Catherine. There's no doubt about it. It's much easier to just differentiate the models and and talk about them like they're doing good work. I mean, they're trying hard. They certainly work hard. I know a whole bunch of people that work harder than they have to. Uh, but I think that it's a better way to handle that conversation, much better. So we break the water for it's okay to steal from your competitors. Because at the end, that's what you do when you win a sale. Uh, and so we, we don't have to feel bad, right? 
Well, it, it helps to know that they're trying to steal your clients from you. <laughs> so uh, it's it's a it's a match that we're in, right? So they're trying to take ours from us, and we're trying to take theirs from them. And look, sometimes you know, the start of the book Eat Their Lunch, I explain uh, a lot of times people get complacent and they don't try to create new value for the client. And sometimes they feel like they're entitled to the business or that the contract is going to protect them from anything bad happening. But as the world out there continues to change at a faster and faster pace, you have to keep pace with that and say, as this world change, we need to change together. We need to stay in front of these things. So the person that's complacent or lazy or entitled, uh, they're in deep trouble. I mean, it, it's going to be easier and easier to displace them as as the company recognizes we have to continue to evolve to live in this new environment that we live in. Um, who are you working with right now that, that you can share? What is a typical project, typical client you work with? Um, I, I'm, I'm basically under NDA with clients, but I can just tell you I work with um, companies that are very, very small, but we do that on a platform that we can help them develop. But mostly it's very, very large companies. And mostly it's companies that have the higher price in the category because they create greater value. And so generally it's harder to sell when you have a higher price and you don't know how to communicate the value of the higher price. So a lot of the work that I do is around the language choices and the strategies to be able to deserve that additional premium for what it is you're selling because you're creating that value. And a general project for a transformation, it might be um, three to four years that, that we work on transforming a sales force to be able to do these things. And a lot of them are what we would call stuck with a, a legacy approach. The legacy approach is, let me tell you about my company. Let me tell you about my products. Let me show you a slide that's got all of the companies that we work with. And then let me ask you what's keeping you up at night. That's a that's a very old way of looking at the sales conversation. And so we would start with a different conversation because we're trying to help the client move to a better place. We're trying to get them to recognize the potential that they still have available to them. And it's a it's a hard transformation if you grew up in a certain environment where you had a legacy approach. And so that's the one you know, and that's the one that you're most comfortable with. And you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable for a little while. So the legacy approach is broken. It sounds really boring. What's the better approach? The better approach is to start with a value conversation. So the way that we would think about this is uh, when a legacy approach starts at level one, let me talk to you about my company and my product. Uh, a modern approach is one where discovery changes dramatically. So I'm going to start with strategic outcomes, the things that I know are going to be critically important to you and your business. That's the starting point of the conversation. And discovery, instead of me asking you what's keeping you up at night, and you tell me all these things that are keeping you up at night, I tell you what's keeping you up at night, and I share insights with you so that you have the aha moment. And you go, wait, I just learned something about my business that's going to help me make the changes that I need to make. Now, I'm not saying that I'm not learning too. I'm, I'm going to be teaching you how to think about your business and you're going to be teaching me how to think about your business because you know your business better than I do. But I know how to get the result better than you do, which is why I'm here giving you the advice as to what you need to do next because I do this every day and you do it once every five years. So one of us has hundreds or maybe thousands of experiences 
and the other one maybe has one or two experiences. So your a modern approach takes into account I'm teaching and I'm learning at the same time. Oh, I love this on many levels because also as a as an advisor, you are in different industries in many industries at once, sometimes hundreds of industries, uh, and and this is also an additional perspective that you bring in. And in in my team, we talk about we want to write as if we would listen. So write about you in a way that you feel seen, you feel uh, listened to. Yeah, that's me. It's true. How, how do you know that? And uh, you are you are one step further away. So when when you when you describe that, um, I just subscribed to your blog, so I don't know it yet. But I guess this is what you write about. Hey, uh, I see you. These are your problems. This is what other people do. Yeah, and I, I would take it up a level from that, though. So one, one thing that you can think about is, you know, what are the mistakes that they generally make? What are the problems that they have right now? That That's one place to start. I want to go up a number of levels higher than that to say, why are these things happening? What what has been missed? What What is going on in the external world that's causing some of these things? And the, the idea, the concept is something called sense-making. You know, we're, we're trying to help the client make sense of their world and make sense of these decisions and to have a deeper understanding so that they can enable something that is going to help them move from their current state to their future state. So it's a it's a very different game to play, but that's right. And you, if you go out and you sell something every day, um, you should have much more experience than the client and you should be, um, I'm going to challenge people, you have to be really thoughtful about writing down what you're learning and then organizing that in such a way that you can deliver it to help somebody else get the same information so that they can make better decisions. And as you've done this and you help a lot of people, your experience grows and your perspective grows because you see like in this industry, this doesn't work, but it works in this other one because there's different factors that you have to consider. And you start to be able to give people really good advice through all of your experience if you organize it and if you're thoughtful enough to carry a notebook with you and write everything down. So what do I write on the blog? Uh, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> a lot of it is about a modern sales approach, but uh, I, I write whatever I feel like writing on that particular day or whatever has my attention at that time. So you're only about 4,300 posts behind. So you could catch that up over the weekend if you want to. There's uh, uh, maybe four or five million words. <laughs> it's been a, a labor love for 11 years for me. We had people on the show who said the most important thing in sales is to get to know. We had Jim Camp, we had Chris Voss. They say, hey, you have to go for no. And then we had other people from the Harvard School of Thought. They said, go for yes. Is your get these 10 commitments, is that a, a go to yes philosophy? Well, it's certainly not a go for no. So uh, I know Andrea Walt, she speaks at my conference, the Outbound Conference that uh, we'll have in June this year. Um, and it's not, it's basically say be immune to the no and just keep, keep working and keep going towards the yes. Um, I'm not trying to get a no. I'm, I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to help enable a decision. I'm trying to help enable a decision for the client and not just any decision, the right decision that's been well thought, where they've, they've had all of the commitments in the book, The Lost Art of Closing. They've had all the conversations they need to, to successfully make the change that they want to make. 
So I'm only concerned about the change. I need them to go from where they are to the better outcome that's available to them. I'm not trying to get them to say no to me on the way. And I'm, I'm not an FBI hostage negotiator. So I, I, I've never done that. The only negotiation I know is positioning, differentiating, creating greater value, justifying the delta between my price and somebody else's, explaining the concessions that they might make, and helping them make the right decision for their business. So I hope I'm always getting a yes because I deserve the yes by helping them enough that they say, that was incredibly valuable for me. What do we do next? I mean, I, I want that kind of experience. I I understand the concept that you described, and uh, I understand its value in a hostage negotiation. I just don't do hostage negotiation, so I've never needed to to use that. In a negotiation, I might say no, because that lets me get to another part of a, a conversation. But I'm negotiating all of these commitments. You're, you, if you're listening to this and you're in B two B, you're 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 responsible for negotiating in advance. Where we started this conversation, like Rackham described. You're responsible for getting the next meeting. You might have to negotiate for that mes- next meeting. And in that book, there's two rules at the beginning. Trade enough value that you can get that commitment. You have to trade enough value. It has to be worth their time. The person who creates the greatest value throughout the sales conversation wins. That's how it works. So I'm going to beat you by creating more value than you do. Another uh, question that was often discussed is, should we create value in the sales conversation or do never create value in the conversation? Just describe the process, describe the next steps and do never create value in it. And the other school is create value in the conversation. And that's how you create the smallest experience that you want to then uh, amplify. What's your perspective? There, there is nothing else available to you as a salesperson to create value, except the conversation. There's nothing else available to you. That All you have is the conversation and the commitments. You don't have anything else. And you could say, yeah, but I have a really good product. They can't feel the value of that product in the conversation. They'd have to buy the product. How do they decide to buy the, the product in the conversation? You can say, my company's great. You should trust us because my company's been doing this for a very long time. Well, maybe they have, but I can't feel the value from that now in this conversation. But when I say I have a concern about this, I'm not sure what the right decision might look like. And I say, well, there's generally three factors that you're going to need to concern yourself with and have a number of conversations about to make a good decision here. And here's how you might think about and weigh those decisions. Now I'm creating value for that person because I'm enabling something that they didn't have access to before I shared that with them. If you don't create value in the conversation, where are you going to create it? And you're like, well, maybe at the end I'll do something that, you know, I heard a kid a couple of weeks ago say, I have to add value in the negotiation, which means I'm going to give them a concession. Well, that's because you didn't create the appropriate value throughout the sales conversation. So I think it's really important that people understand all you have is the sales conversation. So where should you get really good? Where should you focus on developing? Where would you want the highest competency? The conversation. There's nothing else for you. How to handle objections? Like the typical objections are, yes, but not now. I need to talk to my partners, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there's a couple things that you have to recognize. There are 
real objections. And what a real objection is, it's something that someone says that's masking their real concern. And sometimes people just tell you what their real concern is. So when someone says, I'm not sure, what you heard is, I have an unresolved concern. I can't move forward because I have an unresolved concern. And then you told me you need to talk to your partner. So you're not sure you have consensus with your partner. So you already told me everything I need to know. I I already know everything I need to know. You masked it. You tried to mask it, but it's very clear what your concern is. And so I'm going to say, listen, um, you're right to have some concerns about a change of this nature. And you are absolutely going to need to talk to your partner. If uh, I could share one recommendation with you, we should get you and your partner together and let's sit down and have a conversation to see if this makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense on what kind of a timeline might you need to reconsider something like this, when would we be able to do that? I mean, I, I understand what your concern is already because you, you said it to me. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you. So I have to figure out what help does this person need? And you already told me I need to talk to my partner. So I need consensus because I'm concerned they're not going to be on board with this. Okay, good. You didn't say those words, but I know it because I started making cold calls when I was 15. So <laughs> I've done this for a long time and you see the patterns. It's easy to see the patterns after you do something for a long time. I am going to buy your new book. <laughs> and uh, and also Catherine says, hey, this is so good. So glad I listened in. Thank you, Catherine. Yes, thank oh. you, Catherine. I always appreciate you on Instagram too. <laughs> cool. And um, uh, Anthony, what are, apart from your books, uh, three books on sales that you would recommend in terms of, yes, this this has had a positive impact on me or my clients? All right. So the first book I would recommend is also by Neil Rackham. I would recommend Major Account Sales Strategy, one of the best books I ever read and one of the books that had the most profound impact on my actual winning deals. So uh, that one I put right at the top of the list. Mahan Kalasa, Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. Now, that is a book about having very, very frank and honest conversations that I would describe as positioning you as a trusted advisor. So I, I think that that would be the other one. And then the third sales book I would give you, I wouldn't give you a sales book. The, the third book I would give you would be a, a little book called Mastery by an Aikido master named George Leonard. And I would give you that one because it explains the difference between a poser or a dabbler and somebody who's actually a craftsperson, somebody who's seriously after mastery. And uh, that book will probably do more to change your results than just about anything else you might read if you put it into practice. If you put that into practice, your results will change dramatically. And you'll understand the power of being uh, focused on development, personal and professional development over a longer period of time, especially when you get stuck on the plateau and you, do, you keep working hard, but you're not getting any better. And you're like, this is as good as I'm going to be. So I'm going to give up on the development. That's you have to stay on the mat for a long time. You have to keep doing the work until you make the breakthrough. And then you'll be on a plateau again for a little while. But that's that's a book that will change your, your thinking about all of these things. This is beautiful. And especially all the three were never mentioned here. We have 300 episodes and we, we got 900 books. And this this these three are all three fresh. Thank you so much. 
I want to know so much more after one word from our sponsor. Hey, if you love what you are hearing, you will love our free masterclasses. Go grab them at strategiesprints.com. What about inbound and outbound? Is this difference so relevant, still relevant? What's your take? I mean, I, I've come out of a world where I never had any leads. So I, I don't really know a lot about leads because I, I've never had them in, in a business where I was the salesperson. Uh, I think that when someone raises their hand, so basically when you think about what people would call buyer's journey, a buyer's journey is like awareness. Well, I don't like that. If they pick up the the phone and call you or they reach out in some way where they're actually reaching out, not just like downloading a white paper, but they actually reach out to you and ask for help, then you know that they're already compelled to change. So if they're compelled to change, I don't have to compel them to change because they are compelled to change. I do have to teach them why they're compelled to change, how they should think about that, and then what their choices might be going forward. Uh, the second place that you might find them is not compelled. And so most of the time in my world, I've been in a competitive displacement business, so I have to go take something from somebody else. When I show up, they're not compelled to change. So if they're not compelled to change, then I have to compel them to change. And so one of the ways that you can think about the difference between inbound and outbound, inbound might have a higher propensity to already be compelled to change. So I don't have to worry so much about that part of the conversation and if, the, if I'm going outbound, I'm assuming that this person is not compelled to change or taking no action on this, so I probably have to compel them to change. And so that's the, the way that I would think of this that makes the most sense to say, what's your approach going to look like? What's the conversation going to be like? If you've already been out studying and reading and downloading things, and now you raise your hand and you're like, I need some help here, I'm assuming you're trying to find some help, and you've already been through some of what you need to know to be compelled to move forward. So your approach is going to change a little bit. So are you using the same checklist of the 10 commitments, basically, for for both? And, and you are just defining, okay, they are at stage five. They are at change. Uh, no, they are at this other stage. Is this your general checklist? Yeah, so the, the first commitment is time. The second is exploring change. The third is, uh, are they willing to change? Do they want to go through the process? And are they going to be willing to make a decision at the end? So they're probably already at three and they've already reached out for time. So I didn't have to get that one. They gave it to me. I didn't have to ask them to explore because they raised their hand. So I'm basically at three. Is this something that's worth your time? Are you going to be able to get the resources? Is your team going to be able to execute this? Are you going to have the, the investment available to you to do these things? So we're starting it a little further in. That's right. Is this could could this be used or is this used literally as a CRM opportunities pipeline? The ten steps and you move them. Well, basically, what people have done is kept their stages. So they've kept the stages and they've said we're going to take our best guess at where we're having this conversation. But because the conversation is is now so nonlinear, it's very hard for people to realize. Like I might go through all the way through discovery, make a presentation and then have to go back through discovery with more stakeholders. And so it's more of a tracking device to say, did we have this conversation successfully? And so can I check the box that I had that successfully with them? And so I know that they're okay moving forward from this point because we've already done this. So they generally just embed it in 
discovery, solution design, things like that. How does technology change sales right now to be more human or um, in, in your perspective, to be more, more relevant and more appropriate to the world we live in? I have a tough time with the question unless you have a robot girlfriend. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that any technology improves anyone's ability to be human. Uh, right now, there's a, a lot of bad advice. And so I, I would tell you for the last, let, let's figure out about how long. So let's go, as, as it pertains to sales enablement, let's go back to maybe 2010 or sometime right around there. Uh, CRM is big, lots of technology being used, starting to figure out what to do with some of this technology, at least from Silicon Valley's view. So all of this stuff happens and the primary focus shifts to how do we become more efficient? That, that's what it shifts to. And so technology is about efficiency in, a, in large part. Sales is not about efficiency. Sales is about effectiveness. And, and so you can be really efficient at sending emails. And when you're super efficient, we call that spam. And, and when you're on LinkedIn and you've automated that and you have a little Calendly link at the bottom of it because you're arrogant enough to believe that somebody wants to meet with you when you've traded no value for that meeting at all, which is why they have trouble prospecting, then you're not humanizing anything at all. So if, if you want to think about humanizing something, then you, you start to recognize that there's a, a few things that matter. If you look at Charlie Green's work, um, Charlie wrote Trusted Advisor with David Meister. He wrote Trust-Based Selling, which is a book that everyone should read. Now I'm giving your people more books. So here, now you got four from me. You may have 11 by the time we're done. I don't know. It's hard to say. So Charlie's book, Trust-Based Selling, and the trusted advisor field book, which is a magnificent piece of work that you absolutely must buy. Uh, you, Charlie will tell you that there's certain factors that make up an equation for trust. Okay. So it is credibility multiplied by reliability, multiplied by intimacy, divided by how self-oriented you are. And if you ask Charlie, which is the biggest factor in whether or not you're trusted, it's not reliability, it's not credibility, it's intimacy. That means, do you know me? Do you understand me? Do you care about me? Are you going to be here to help me with this? Those are different factors and you can't automate that. So the thing that's going to make successful people uh, in sales in the future is intimacy and being more human. And so right now here in the United States, I don't know about Austria, I'd like to visit you in Austria. I, I would like to, to see that. And I like Europe a lot. I'd like to spend some more time there, but it's going to be a little while, I think, before I get over there. If, if you want to know what the mistake being made right now is that people believe that we're going to do everything virtual from now on, and we're not. We're going to go back to having a presence. We're going to be face-to-face. -face. You're not going to have a robot girlfriend, and you're not going to trade sexting for actual sex. Like Human beings have been human for a very, very long time. And they're continued to do human things. So a pandemic isn't going to stop human beings from having dinner together, uh, for going to movies, for going to concerts. They, it's not going to stop any of this. The more you have a presence and the more that you're available to that client in a, in a 
place where you're actually with them all the way with them. Not like this with them, you know, like, Hey, we're having dinner and we're both looking at our phones. Not that kind of presence, the real one where you give yourself over to the conversation. It's going to be, a, it's going to be complete domination for people who do this. It's going to be complete and total domination. You know, what's funny. I'm, I'm with you. And at the same time, I have a complimentary experience. Bef before my full online model, the strategy sprint, which is really on the phone 24-7, you can tag your sprint coach, hey, should I do this or should I do that? You can ask like 16 times per day. Before I had that, I would fly to their city, which was San Francisco or London or Zurich. So you need time to get there. And... Uh, and also, you know, there is a scheduling frequency, et cetera. So you might wait three weeks until we have a three-hour session again. And in right. that time, you're alone with your decisions. And even if I want to be there, I'm just not there. I'm booked somewhere else. Right. And so when, when we switched to this uh, online model, we have created so much more reliability. Like now we are really much more here because in the moment you need the decision you can tag us we are there with you in that moment which and it's funny because it has created on one side us being much more reliable much much more intimacy trust reliability even if it's just you know technology really yeah it's it's remote. I, I don't disagree with that i mean i have uh, i have a uh, hundred hours of unique content i mean i have a hundred hours of that on, on a platform it's a it's a lot of content and it's because i can't be there right now but i can give you the answer right now so i mean i can give you what the answer is right now and give you the help you need even when i'm not there and the reason that that's valuable is because in my world let's say i walked in and i did a workshop for a group of people i would have to have perfect delivery i mean i would have to deliver it so perfectly that everyone has absolute comprehension of what i said a hundred percent retention of it and the competency to execute it for the rest of their life, having heard it one time, N not a great strategy. So, but if I can let you go back and look at this work, and if I can give you some assignments, and if we can get back together and coach you later on in another session, we can dial it in for you. And so I don't disagree with that. I would just tell you, you know, in my world, people are saying, we're not going back. We're not going to travel again. We're not going to go see clients. And you are. Because if you don't, you're going to have other people who will. And, and showing up means a lot. Showing up means so much to human beings. And the time, so th this is what I, I guess I want to say to you. Um, every, everything has its own cost. Everything has a cost. Uh, if you look at Robin Dunbar's work, there's a, there's a theory called Dunbar's number. And Dunbar studied primates and he recognized that there's certain folds in their brain. They have less folds than we have. And so a chimpanzee can manage about maybe 30 relationships total. And there's a cost for that. Like if you're a chimpanzee and I'm a chimpanzee, I got to pick nits out of your, your fur every day. And then we have to walk most of the day to find food. And then we have to chew. So I don't have a lot of time to nurture a lot of relationships because I'm busy being a chimpanzee. And you're busy being a chimpanzee too. So we don't have a lot of time for these things. As humans, we're not chimpanzees. We have more folds and we can manage maybe 150 relationships. Well, what's the cost of managing 150 relationships? I've got to show up. 
I've got to have meals with you. I've got to follow up with you. I've got to be available to you. So you can't manage more than 150. Although I think Dunbar's number is wrong because the technology does let me manage more relationships because I can keep track of them without having to rely on the substrate. That's my mind or my brain. Right. So I think it's, there's a price, there's a price for relationships. You have to pay that price when something's important. How many people read your blog right now? Uh, I think maybe like 65,000 a month or something like that. Can you keep more than 150 of them in a conversation? I, I, I used to do that. I used to tell people to send me questions at the end of it, but it, it became, you know, as the list got bigger and we are approaching 100,000, then it was harder for me to send out a newsletter and respond to all of the emails as much as I would want to. I respond to as many as I can, but it's, uh, it's difficult now. How will you solve that? Will, will you um, multiply yourself or uh, create teams of coaches? Well, I have three children, so I, I've multiplied myself by at least I have three now. So uh, I've done that. Uh, yeah. So one way is to use technology. And technology is always on, always available. So that's useful. But also having other people who understand the structures and the, the, the ways I think about the conversation. Yeah, that's for sure. You have to do that. At some point, you have to scale it up. We, we went into a certification model. I have fired myself from fulfillment one and a half years ago. And I've now certified strategy sprints coaches. They, they're doing a much better job than uh, I would do because they have more patience and they have more time and uh, I'm not the bottleneck anymore. I'm so pumped to read your next book and um, I'm also curious, what are you excited about, um, about your business looking forward? I'm, I, I think that we're at a point where people are starting to catch on to how far behind they are in the sales conversation. So we have more and more people recognizing this and, and coming to us to ask for help. So that's good. I'm excited about everything that I do. So, I mean, I enjoy everything that I do. I I'm a, a constant student, so I'm always learning and I'm always experimenting. And uh, I do a lot of similar ideas to you. Like I do a sprint and I see what happens and I'm okay with failing. And it was very tough for some of the groups I work with to understand I'm, I'm perfectly willing to try something and fail because it's the only way I get the knowledge. Like, why did that work or why did it not work? What would I change? And uh, I'm willing to dial things in and short bursts of work and see what happens. Uh, Cause I like that. I think it's the right thing to do. You run experiments, right? And then you, you see what happens. And when something works, you figure out why, and is it repeatable? How else do you collect the data that you need? You I need don't to know how you else you do it. Like you just, yeah. you have to figure it out. Right. <laughs> like for example, last week, we had Perry Marshall on the show and I told him that uh, we, we sent 40 automated emails and after they get uh, through thousand people, then we, we see and, and, and we, we take for that uh, seven days. And then we, we go through the click rate and the open rate and we eliminate the losers, basically the one that have um, uh, the least echo with our ecosystem. And so, and he said, yeah, perfect. That's the 80-20 rule. Uh, so he calls it the 80-20. We call it the sprint because it's seven days and it's numeric. So we, 
we think uh, that everything is an assumption, that all the time we have just assumptions. There is no reality. We have tons of assumptions. So we try to write them down, make them numeric, and then some of them we can invalidate. We go always for invalidation. And if we cannot invalidate them via data, uh, well, then they are validated. Then we continue. We build on that, that we are onto something. Sounds like the right approach. And uh, yeah, that's the strategy sprints method. And uh, in, we use it to improve operations and improve sales. So I am, I am super pumped about your books and especially the, the new one uh, about the competition and competitive analysis because our clients, um, uh, they need good books and good um, inspiration. And this is very solid advice that I got from you. I learned so much in these 44 minutes Anthony, oh yeah, this is where it comes from. That's that's half of the library. The other half is in the basement, so you you, you can only see that. Yeah, I, I think it's incredibly. I mean, I don't know that there's a better deal on earth. You can go to a bookstore, and for twenty five dollars in six hours, you can learn something that somebody else took a lifetime to learn and write down. And it's I don't know that there's a faster way, or a smarter way to do that than to just go out and buy the book, read the book. Uh, execute on the book, see what works for you, and just keep moving. It's a bargain, right? It's a screaming bargain. It's and I'm curious because uh, my my family has said, okay, stop now, books. We have so many books everywhere. Buy the Kindle. And I'm now buying the Kindle. And then I forget that I have it. And two weeks later, I, I buy the paperback. <laughs> yeah. How you sold that? <laughs> I like hardcover books still. Uh, I'm still a hardcover guy. I like them and... I write on them with a, with a pencil, and then I transfer my notes over. It would be much faster to do it on Kindle. I've done it on Kindle. I've read hundreds of books on Kindle, and it's much easier to keep your notes there, especially with a, a tool called Readwise. Yeah, Readwise is amazing. Like you can just pull out all of the all of your notes and everything you highlighted. It's so helpful. I would like to do it, but I, I still the tactile. Uh, experience of a book is still better for me for whatever reason. Readwise actually saved me a lot of money because it it makes automatically some reviews. Hey, yeah. look, this is what you have highlighted three weeks ago. And I and then I go like, oh, I have this book already. I don't have to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I have, uh, I just, I'm working on the basement library right now because I moved half of the books up here when we put bookshelves in. And uh, I, I started a stack of books I have multiple copies of because I forgot I'd bought in it and exactly. it's sitting there. And exactly. The, they're going to end up going to the half-price bookstore. So, Anthony, where can people read about your blog and stay in touch with all your wisdom? There's a whole bunch of places. So the best place to go is thesalesblog.com. And when you go there, um, sign up for the newsletter. That's the best place to start following my work. There's a button up at the top of that blog that says follow me. So that'll get you Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, wherever else you want to follow me, wherever it makes sense for you. Uh, so I'm everywhere. YouTube, there's maybe 350 videos there or something like that that have been mm -hmm. helpful for people. And then if you're interested in your personal and professional development, that site is b2bsalestraining.com. What's, what's the name of your, of your YouTube channel? Uh, Anarino. So just my last name, youtube.com forward slash Anarino. Very good. And uh, who should be my next guest? Who should be your next guest? 
I don't know your audience uh, well enough to know, but I have to think about that. I know I'm working on my next guest, Cal Newport. You know Cal Newport? Oh, yeah. I love him. Yeah. I interviewed him when he uh, came out with Digital Minimalism. Mm -hmm. uh, his new book is The World Without Email. I really would like to um, bring him on to talk about that. Absolutely. Thank no you so much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anthony, for being here, sharing your three books, your full checklist of the Ten Commitments, and so much from your journey and of your wisdom. Uh, please come back soon. Will do. And when I'm in Austria, dinner. Yes, dinner in Austria. Old school. <laughs> Absolutely. Avoid trying to do thousands of things that doesn't work. We have 274 templates for your business success. Reach your ambitious goals with one-on-one -on -one sprint coach. We double your revenue in 90 days.